Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold. So glad we're going to be together for this time. I don't know how much time you can spend with me today, but I hope it's at least two hours because that's the full length of the show. We're going to have a great show. We're going to have uh, Rob Louie joining me in just a minute because, you know, he's my first Tuesday guest. He is my contact in Washington, D.C. He lets me know what's going on in that part of the world and what's happening in our country. Doesn't seem to matter, though, because the supremacy of Christ is where we should all live. And I want to say, according to Psalm 119, verse 30, I have chosen the way of faithfulness. I have set my heart on your laws. So I live first and foremost for the Lord. And then it's also good to be informed, to be an informed citizen, and to uh, go to go to news sources that are speaking truth and trying to re- report honestly. Because I don't know if there's a lot of that going on, but I always... Enjoy going to dailysignal.com where I find lots and lots of great stories and great uh, writers who make uh, great contributions. Rob Blue is the executive editor of Daily Signal, and he's my regular guest on Tuesday. Always glad to hear from him, and he's on our studio line right now. Hello, Rob. It's good to be with you, Bill. Thanks for having me back. Well, no, so nice to be here. I know that um, lots are lots going on. I want to start, Rob, if I can, with the mob mentality. This is not going away anytime soon. No, it doesn't appear to. Uh, it, you know, I think it's uh, one of those things where uh, our country right now is is facing, um, you know, three big uh, challenges. I mean, obviously, coronavirus continues to uh, hamper people and their ability to recover and get back to work. Uh, there is, uh, as a result of that, a significant economic pressure on a lot of individuals and families. And then uh, we have a situation of, with a lot of unrest in our country right now. Um, the, the divisions that uh, we've seen and talked about on the show in the past uh, are playing out now in our streets, and you have uh, conflicts uh, in big cities like Portland and Seattle, and uh, and there's concern that I think Americans have that uh, this isn't going to get better anytime soon, and so they're looking for, for some resolution and clarity and, and hopefully saying a prayer uh, for those individuals who are in positions of leadership and hopefully can do something about it. Mm-hmm. I talked to a friend of mine today in Iowa. Of course, Iowa has 3 million people, and there is still under 800 deaths from COVID, only 224 people in the hospital. That does not seem like an unstoppable pandemic uh, to me. However, uh, it's a very serious problem, and but these statistics don't seem to line up with hysteria I still hear every day. Well, and, and we're seeing it all across this country. In fact, uh, just just locally, a decision that impacts me uh, and, and my family is... Um, uh, in Northern Virginia, the superintendent, uh, which was the school district, uh, was intending to have two days a week of in-person classroom. You had 60% of parents respond that they would send their send their children uh, to uh, to those to the school for those two days. Um, and uh, the superintendent came out today and said, "Too dangerous. Uh, can't reopen in in September. 
we need to do everything virtually, which again is uh, is this is a school district that serves almost 200,000 students. Uh, you know, they'll, they'll think about all of the families that now will be unable to re- return to normalcy in the fall uh, because uh, the schools can't reopen. And so it's a situation that has uh, significant consequences. There are ramifications uh, for for all of those individuals. And and you're right, Bill. I think that people, as they look at the numbers and they they try to decipher uh, whether or not it is safe to to go out and start resuming some of the activities that they were doing uh, prior to to mid-March, they're getting conflicting information. They're they're hearing uh, in some places that it's okay and in other places that it's not. And uh, Virginia has actually been one of the states where things have been more stable. And so when a decision like this is made, uh, you you have to wonder if it's more of the national influence and the the pressure that individuals are, are facing. Bill, I should also know um, they did a survey, as I, as I indicated, and the parents indicated that 60% of the, the students would return. Uh, they also surveyed the teachers, which I found surprising. 48% of the teachers said that they would go back and be in the classroom. They wanted to be back in the classroom. 48%, much higher percentage than anyone would indicate. You think you would leave, you you hear these news reports, you would think that 100% of teachers want to uh, stay home uh, and, <laughs> and not go back to school because yeah. they're too afraid. When in fact, it's about a 50. Split. Yeah. So, Rob, uh, Rachel Del Judas had a great uh, interview with Ted Cruz, and uh, Ted Cruz said it's racist to defund the police. This is going to be, be a hot topic coming up towards election, this whole idea of defunding the police. What comments can you make on this? Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, it is it is dangerous because uh, the police, uh, in particular, uh, protect uh, all Americans, including uh, minorities. Uh, sometimes it's their communities that are suffering some of the greatest crime, and so that's where police presence is needed most. And we've seen this uh, play out in communities all across the country, where where African Americans and, and others have, have spoken out in support of the police uh, for the very reason that they think that they should be uh, have an active presence. And I think that you also have a situation where people are beginning to realize that if the police don't show up, there, um, you know, there, are, there are negative effects of that. Uh, you don't necessarily have the protection that you come to expect. Uh, our tax dollars, uh, you know, obviously pay to support these public service, servants, and, um, and, and we expect them to, to be able to show up and do their job without people getting in the way and interfering of that. Now, if the, if the city governments are going to cut funding for that and they're not going to be able to have the resources, I think that uh, individuals will begin to, you know, start raising legitimate questions. Uh, and all at the same time, it, it, many of these political leaders, whether at the local level or national level, uh, think about all the security protection they have. So they don't necessarily bear the brunt of, of what's going on here. It's, it's the communities themselves. And I think that's why Senator Cruz spoke out the way he did, because he wanted to portray uh, what's really playing out in our country as a dangerous step uh, that will lead to a less law and order and, uh, and more crime. When I think of your home state of New York, you grew up in upstate New York, and what's going on in New York City right now is really a painful experiment that is the result of a billion-dollar cut to police, and now there's mass exodus of people leaving the city, and they're going to be in trouble, aren't they, Rob? Oh, I think so. I think you're already beginning to see the effects of that, and, and people uh, fleeing the city because they are, are afraid of what uh, what is to come in the future. 
And so, yes, uh, the, the lack of police presence there and the, and the budget cuts will have an impact not just in New York but in cities all across this country that are taking those actions. And I, I think that, you know, they say that they're redeploying them to other, other places like social workers, and I think that there is certainly uh, perhaps some, some role uh, for those individuals to play. But when a crime is being committed uh, and, and it needs to be investigated, uh, you know, you expect the police officers to show up and be the ones to do that, that type of work. Uh, it's not that if we abolish the police, all of a sudden, crime is going to disappear. Uh, that's not going to be the case. In fact, if, if we look at what's going on in some of these rather chaotic uh, situations in, in places like Portland, uh, crime actually still continues, or Seattle. Uh, there, there, are still, uh, there are still people who are getting hurt, uh, even killed in some cases. And, uh, and that's why we have a system of law and order and justice in, in our country. And we've, uh, we've had a pretty successful run at it. Now, Bill, that's not to acknowledge there, have, there aren't some bad apples. There, is, there, there, there you know, are steps that can be taken to reform and improve. I, I acknowledge that. Uh, but to, to go from one extreme to the other just seems uh, like a, a terrible mistake. And, and I hope more people will have the courage to speak up and speak out against it. Yeah. Rob, has anyone from the Daily Signal had a chance to talk to anyone in law enforcement and just try to get a read as to what their morale is like and how they're faring in all well, this? It, yeah, we, we certainly do. And, and by the way, Bill, uh, long before uh, even this current debate, uh, the Daily Signal and the Heritage Foundation, our parent, uh, has, has played a, a very strong role uh, in poli- uh, on, the, on the topic of policing in America. Um, Ed Meese, the former attorney general, who's a colleague of mine, uh, is somebody who has, uh, has led this initiative. And he has done a really great job of bringing together uh, varying voices on the issue of, of criminal justice and policing. And, uh, and so, yeah, naturally, as, uh, as these latest things have popped up, uh, we've been in touch with law enforcement. We've heard from them. One of the things that we've also done is, uh, is the staff at the Heritage Foundation, just as, we, um, just as when COVID hit. Uh, there, there was a tremendous need from, from local hospitals and ERs uh, to support those workers who were in some cases, uh, you know, there around the clock, uh, you know, to, to show them our support. So I think that, you know, there are steps that individuals can take. They sometimes, you, you listeners might ask, well, what can I really do to have an impact? Well, show your support for local police. You know, mm-hmm. bring, uh, bring them a gift card, bring them a meal, uh, see what they need, if, they, if they're need a need of support. And, and I think those are things that we're trying to do um, as an organization. Those are things that I think individual Americans can do. And yes, as we hear from them and, uh, and, and some of the demoralizing attacks that have been launched against them, uh, they, need our, they need to hear our support now more than ever. Yeah. It's one of the reasons that we're engaged with PragerU this week as, as part of its Back the Blue campaign. And it's so important to have a voice out there. Uh, Rob, I want to ask you about, I'm trying to keep this, this time really upbeat because you're such an upbeat guy, which I love about you. But uh, let's talk, if we can, briefly about our, what, $26.5 trillion, uh, uh deficit and growing. <laughs> yes. That's getting to be uh, st- just staggering beyond belief. Well, it is, and uh, and I'm glad you brought it up because uh, it, we're, we're at a time again when we're having discussions about another uh, stimulus package for for the U.S. economy in the midst of uh, coronavirus and and whether or not we have stimulus checks that arrive in uh, you know to individual Americans or a payroll tax cut or or more relief for for businesses, uh, all of these ideas are being thrown out on the table by Republicans and Democrats, and I think. You know, one of the things that is distressing is that there hasn't been much talk uh, over the last uh, 
well, a decade plus. I mean, you go back to the Tea Party movement, uh, you know, when this was really an issue that was front and center in the minds of a lot of Americans, our out-of-control spending. Uh, in recent years, it just has not. It's, it's evaporated. And uh, I think we need to get back to focusing on, on these issues. We can't just continue to spend, spend, spend. There has to be other ways to do it. As a family, you're expected to balance your budget. Many states have balanced budgets. Uh, yet at the federal government, it seems like we disregard that. And uh, it will come back to have a consequences for future generation, generations. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Rob, would you explain to me and my listeners this California law? I think it's called, is it AB5? Yeah, well, it's a, it's a law that California put in place, California being a, a progressive bastion that it is, uh, you know, always trying to be on the forefront of things. This is not an area that I think we want to see expand to other states. However, uh, my colleague Kelsey Bowler did, uh, did a tremendous piece for the Daily Signal on this topic because it's really impacted the lives of, of many individuals, um, uh, individuals who are trying to make a living uh, through doing things maybe through an untraditional or, 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 or maybe disruptive uh, way, uh, you know, and uh, for instance, uh, individuals who, who serve as independent contractors are now you know, uh, faced with, with new consequences as a result of how uh, California has determined that their, their job is being impl- uh, classified. And so uh, it's destroying livelihoods of individuals, Uber drivers, you know, individuals who uh, you know, thought that they were on a, on a better path, and, uh, and now as a result of them serving as an independent contractor, which independent, for those of listeners who might not know, there are those who have like re- you know, regular full-time time jobs where you're employed, and then there are others who might be independent contractors. So an independent contractor might have many different jobs. They might drive an Uber during the day. They might be a graphic designer at night, you know, mm-hmm. and, uh, and California is looking to put restrictions or has already put restrictions on these individuals that's having a, a devastating impact. And so Kelsey has examined that and told some of the personal stories, and I really encourage your listeners to check it out. I think it's one of those things we need to make sure does not spread uh, to other parts of the country and hopefully can be pulled back in California. Yeah, I just want to remind all of my listeners that you can text a question if you want to ask Rob anything uh, directly. Please do that now at 877-933-2484. Rob Louie is the executive editor of The Daily Signal. I always encourage you to head to dailysignal.com. We'll take a short break and be right back. We're back with Rob Bluey, executive editor of the, of the Daily Signal. You can always go to dailysignal.com. Rob, in the first part, we were talking about the mob mentality. It sounds like they're going after the Pentagon now. What's with that? <laughs> yes. Well, uh, <laughs> how do you go no after way- the Pentagon? There's there's no institution in, in 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 America that I think is safe right now, Bill. Uh, that's that's uh, that's for sure. Um, yeah, look, the, the Pentagon, uh, the, the military is where you you presumably want to keep politics, you know, out right. and, uh, and and focus on defending our country and and supporting the the mission uh, of our U.S. military. But uh, but as we saw uh, with with past administrations, it became entirely uh, too political, and uh, whether it was. Uh, turning our military into a testing ground for climate change or or doing social experiments uh, with uh, 
with Pride Month and and everything else that came come with, comes with that. So you know, the, as as the Trump administration has attempted to pull back and and get back to the core mission of what goes on with the Department of Defense, it's not surprising that uh, that the left wants to to cancel those individuals and 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 push back. And so um, yes, there there are attempts uh, to to do just that. And I think that's one of the reasons why uh, Secretary Mark Esper is one of the strongest leaders we've had in that position. And uh, and I'm proud to say a Heritage Foundation al- alumnus. Uh, so he's uh, he's a great ally to have uh, in that role as Secretary of Defense. Mm-hmm. I found this story very interesting, too, at the Daily Signal. Uh, 96 years South Carolina law has mandated public colleges to require students to take a year-long class on the Constitution, Declaration of Independence, and the Federalist Papers. Well, we, we're seeing more and more, uh, not just at the college level, but uh, even at the high school level, uh, states requiring this, uh, this, this, this type of, uh, you know, uh, approach to, to teaching civics in America. Right. Uh, because, uh, frankly, they're just not getting uh, this uh, from, from other places. And so Arizona has had some success uh, doing this as well. And, uh, and I think that, uh, you know, as we look to, to options and, and making sure that, our, our students, our future generations, understand the, the basics of the American founding and aren't confused by, by efforts like the New York Times uh, to present the 1619 Project and this alternative view of right. history. Uh, you know, it is important that uh, we, we have this, this true understanding about what really took place. Uh, it's one of the reasons why I think you've seen so many, uh, so many black Americans uh, speak up and uh, oppose to what the New York Times is doing. They recognize that uh, what, what they're presenting is a distorted view of history. Uh, it's akin to what Howard Zinn did in his, in his book many years ago, which, <laughs> unfortunately, even, even when I was in college, was required reading for, for students. So for a long time, uh, our, our college professors have been uh, trying to indoctrinate students with an alternative uh, v- version of history. And uh, and I think it's, uh, it's it's starting to catch up with it. And I'm sure that those individuals who are out protesting and tearing down statues, uh, you know, have this gr- this grievance against the United States as a result of what they've been taught. And mm. so we need to push back on it. This is a role that that and we've talked about it before, Bill. I I, I stress it so much because I think parents. Uh, regardless of where you send your kids to school, I mean, parents still have a role in educating their kids. It's not just about the professors or the teachers. It's about parents uh, having an understanding about what the kids are learning in school, having conversations at the dinner table, and making sure that you're taking them uh, to hit the, those historic places and, and helping them understand uh, what took place in Independence Hall in Philadelphia and, and visiting uh, all those great spots throughout our country so they can see firsthand for themselves and understand American history. Mm-hmm. Rob, what's going on with the Coronavirus Commission? I know that president is starting to do more regular briefings now on the coronavirus and he he is yeah. well as the, as you indicated earlier as the cases have have increased i think they uh the, the president is is rightfully concerned uh, to get the message out you even see you've seen the president wear the mask uh, right. uh which he was uh, apparently reluctant to do so uh, you know he uh says when he can't be in a in a socially distanced and distant environment you know he will wear the mask he, he did that when he visited walter reed hospital recently and uh and bill you know i think it's uh it, it's it's important to get the message to the american people uh the the coronavirus daily briefings i think for at one point you know became too political and controversial uh the media was at first clamoring for more information and then it seemed <laughs> they were getting so much information that they wanted them to stop uh so i think that you know whether they re- begin on a regular basis or or whether they're periodic i i never 
uh, think it's a bad idea for, for the, our, our, our nation's leaders to provide information directly to the American people. I often think uh, that information uh, the American people can decipher for themselves and not have to go through a filter, um, like a New York Times or a Washington Post, where sometimes you get a distorted view of reality and, and what actually uh, the President Trump has said, because there's clearly a bias uh, against uh, at what, he, what he does and who he is as an individual. Doesn't it get harder and harder, Rob, the closer we get to the election to sort of uh, go through these stories and try, and try to figure out what's true and what's not true? That's what I love about the Daily Signal. You guys just tell it like it is. And Well, it is. It is incredibly difficult. Uh, that's why I think uh, your, your listeners, all Americans, need to have a balanced news diet, uh, yes. get their news from, from multiple sources and, uh, and not rely on a single news outlet. Um, so, uh, you know, this, this includes local news, this includes national news, international news. Um, even when you're using social media, you know, sometimes we can get in our own, our own you know, filter bubbles and, uh, and, and only read uh, certain types of news. And, and I think that, uh, you know, making sure that you do have a diverse uh, source of, of, of news is, is a good thing. Uh, making sure that uh, you're not just uh, subscribing to, uh, you know, uh, just one particular newsletter, but, uh, but getting many, uh, something I try to do. It's a lot to keep up with, Bill. I, I, I do admit that. And I think we also have to remember that for as much as you and I might be interested in, in, in political coverage, uh, you know, there comes a time after Labor Day in an election year when, when it really starts to intensify and people start to pay attention. And so we're reaching that point. We're going to have a situation where I, I hopefully will have uh, presidential debates and, and we'll hear from the candidates themselves. And, uh, and again, there will be less of a filter on that and there will be more uh, opportunity to hear directly from individuals about uh, what their platform is and what their ideas are for the future of our country. Mm-hmm. As we get closer to August, um, I'm thinking about whether or not schools will open. I know that kids' mobile screen time is up roughly 500% during the pandemic. That can't be good in the long run. Well, it, 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 it's not, but I mean, it's a challenge. So I'll, I'll give you a real-life example. I mean, for, <laughs> for this week, for two hours a day, my, my kids are doing a, a virtual summer camp. I mean, they can't the summer camp isn't open, so they're they're learning about uh, you know um, you know how to make uh, do coding and 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 creating wow. uh, you know digital apps and things like that. Uh, but those are taking place on a screen naturally because that's the way we're communicating now. Up a lot, Bill, <laughs> just from all the Zoom oh, meetings and everything else that's going on. I know. Did you see over the weekend, uh, Rob Kanye West in his presidential uh, meeting that he had his rally? Uh, of course I did. Yeah. Okay. Good. Uh, yeah. <laughs> good. Yeah. Thanks for uh, hanging, not hanging me out to dry on that one. It's interesting. It's interesting to watch. Uh, you know, uh, there's a question about whether Kanye will actually end up on any ballots, <laughs> uh, but uh, but certainly he's somebody who who attracts a large following. He's somebody who also has has what seems to be a very pro-family message, and uh, and so I think it's worth paying attention to what Kanye has to say. Certainly, when he visited the White House, there was a lot of interest uh, among Trump supporters, and so it'll be interesting to see how they react to um, uh, to what Kanye is doing. But uh, but uh, more voices are always better. Bill. And, uh, and so, uh, so hearing from him and what he has to say, I think, uh, could be a welcome development. Yeah. Rob, we only have like 90 seconds left. I had a listener jump, jump on and say, defunding the police isn't the same as abolishing the police. Why is he switching between these terms? Like they're the same. Yeah. Well, well I mean, I, I, I <laughs> if you defund them, I don't know how they, they would, uh, exist for instance. I mean, I guess <laughs> right. you could strip some money away from them and leave a core, core set of services, but, 
Uh, yeah, there, there, just to be clear with your listeners, there are some who want to abolish the police entirely, mm-hmm. um, and then there are those who, who maybe want to take a less radical step of defunding them or taking away some money. So, yes, I, I agree that there is a distinction to be made, uh, but I think what, when you're looking at the mob, um, what they want to do is, is to radically transform our country and, uh, and take away one of the bedrocks of society, which is, is law enforcement, and I think that would be dangerous. Rob, I so appreciate you. I know my listeners love you. I just got another nice comment from a listener saying, thanks so much for having Rob as a regular guest. I learned so much from him and love the Daily Signal. Keep up the good work. Thanks, Bill, and thanks to all your listeners. It's always great to be with you. See you next week, Rob. Rob Blue has been my guest, executive editor of the Daily Signal. Head over to dailysignal.com. We'll take a little break. When we come back, Whitney Caps is my guest. not to love about Whitney Capps, my next guest. She is a, a writer. She's a completely bright spot. Every time she comes on the show, I get excited to talk to her. And she has written a book called uh, Sick of Me and really shows us that spiritual growth means being honest and holy. That we can come to Jesus just the way we are, but we just can't stay that way. And uh, virtues like, I don't know, vulnerability, honesty, humility, really good. And she's also written a new Bible study, which I think is probably perfect time to talk about this because we're in the always in the Bible study mood, and this is sounds very very interesting. Whitney's my guest, and she's on our studio line. Whitney, welcome. Hey, thanks so much for having me. I'm thrilled to be with you. It's um, it's fun when I get to come back and be with somebody. So it feels like we know each other, and this is such a treat. Well, I agree, and I I feel like I could give you a, a real fussy introduction because you've done so many cool things. Uh, but I just feel like you're such good company and people just love hearing your voice and your enthusiasm. Well, that's very kind and fussy introductions are simply not necessary. I'm thrilled to be with you guys and uh, look forward to talking with you today. Thanks. So uh, tell me about We Over Me, the name of your Bible study. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it's um, so it's a Bible study where we look at the book of Revelation, but we focus on the seven letters to the churches and um Honestly, I wrote the Bible study in a season of life. My dad's a pastor, so I've been um, a a part of a ministry family for my entire life. And um, we had gone through a season of church life that, quite frankly, had just been really, really difficult. Um, You know, church people are crazy, right? We're just (laughs) crazy, (laughs) broken people. And um, we had um, kind of lived through not not certainly everybody else's flaws. Some of our own had been put kind of front and center and um, grappling with some of those. And it had just been a really hard season. If I'm honest, I really was ready to bail on the bride. And I thought, surely, and we hear this a lot in Christian subculture, that you can love Jesus, but not love the church. And so I thought, well, you know what? I'd love to know what scripture has to say about that. Because man, if there's ever something that I want to be true, it's that. Hmm. And so I went to the letters to the churches in Revelation 
information and found, um, in fact, quite the opposite, that it is intellectually dishonest for us to say that we love Jesus, but then to bash his bride. And I couldn't, in fact, quit the church. And so um, the letters were really, really convicting personally, um, but they gave me a lot of insight about um, what Jesus loves about his bride and what he calls us to live and look like from a corporate perspective. And so it is not your kind of curl up in your bed and read kind of right before bedtime. Um, it's, it's, it's kind of hard. It was a difficult study to write, but it was so good for me. Well, I would think uh, writing on Revelation would never be easy. I would <laughs> think right. anybody would think that would be a major challenge. And it's broken up into, uh, was it nine sessions and they're all video is. presentations? Is that how it, it works? Is. That's right. So we do, um, there's an introduction and then there's a wrap. And then we look at the seven letters to the churches and um, it's a, a video teaching. And then there's also a workbook component. So you can do it by yourself. You can download the teachings. You can go to lifeway.com and see those or mm -hmm. buy the kit. Um, or you can do it in a church setting. I personally think that's kind of the ideal uh, because really most of our frustrations with the church have to do with relational issues at their core. I mean, we can make them, you know, topical kinds of issues, but they really come down to relational issues. And so I think doing this in the context of a we is really healthy. It's funny when I pitched the idea to the team at Lifeway, I pitched the title to be We Is Killing Me. Hmm. <laughs> I wish you could have been in the room. Um, there was this big, we were in a big boardroom and a bunch of um, executives and um, um, editors were sitting around the table and they kind of leaned back in their chair and they said, well, we, that's... um." that's maybe a little bit more aggressive than we want to go. You know, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, that's, that's for sure true. But there is a sense in which the church, we have become really hyper um, consumeristic towards church. And most often when we think about coming out of a Sunday morning service, most of us will think or engage in some type of conversation to say, what did I get out of church today? When really corporate worship is about what did I contribute, mm. not what did I consume? And so that was the starting place for me was that I had to own and say my me was killing we and to really take another look at that. It's kind of a tongue twister, but I like it. Let's go back to what you said just a minute ago about relationships in trouble in the church. Would you say more about that? Sure. Well, I mean, I think um, we very regularly like to make church issues about issues when really um, I think that the heart of the issue is the heart of the people of the church. And when we're broken and when we're frustrated and when we can only see things from our perspective, we're never going to be able to really deal with the secondary issues that we're frustrated over, whether it's music style or a particular sermon or programming that was cut or promoted, whatever it might be, these things that kind of rub us the wrong way. If we can first approach relationally that, that this person that I worship beside may have very different perspectives, opinions, ideas about church. But if we can sit together and go, you know what? I know that your desire is the gospel and to exalt Jesus. Then we can deal with, we might look differently at how to do it, but to find some commonality there over what we have in common rather than what divides us. And I think far too often we try and jump to resolving the issue without ever taking into account the relational piece. And I think that's really when relationships are fractured. Oh, and yeah. What's happened is then we kind of bail on this particular 
local congregation and move to another. And let me just say, there are biblical reasons to leave a church without question, but there are no biblical reasons to church hop. And I think we often get into relational struggle and think it's better down the road when in fact we just inherit a different set of problems because it's really our heart that's the issue. And we kind of carry that baggage into that new church setting with us. And so I think it's good for the American church to go back to these ancient letters and go, man, what have I missed about what Jesus envisions for a healthy church? You know, Whitney, it's easier to solve a problem than it is to get in the messiness of a relationship. So oh, you for can, sure. Yeah. So say more about that, because that's what happens is people go, I'm out of here. And that's then exactly gone. right. Yeah. Well, I think um, one of the things that's happened, and this was would have really why going back to these ancient letters is so beneficial, is they had a much better understanding of what kind of covenant relationship looked like within the context of a local church, because there was simply no option to leave the church at Ephesus and hop down the road to go to another church. Right. If you were put outside of the church at Ephesus or the church at Smyrna or the church at Philadelphia, there wasn't a plan B. Right. And so I think they had an understanding of, no, we need to fight for unity. We need to fight for this relationship because there's no plan B. And so I think culturally, we don't have that same kind of um, sense of the preciousness of that covenant relationship. And I think it would maybe serve us well to go, you know what, for me, there's not a plan B. So if I'm frustrated, if I'm hurt, if things aren't going the way I want them to, and again, of course, I'm talking surface level disagreements, again, biblical reasons to leave a church. But I would argue the vast majority of our frustrations don't fall into those small categories of biblical reasons to leave a church. And so we need to look at how can I be a part of the solution rather than bailing on the bride and just kind of moving down the road. But you're right. That's one of those things that teaches easy, but lives hard, right? That's real oh, yeah. easy for me to say on a conversation with you in an afternoon, but it's, it's hard for us to do. It really Very is. Very hard. Yeah. Whitney, I would like you to comment on the the of the seven letters. I know Jesus wants to bring about uh, sanctifying his people through the church today, and just right. remind people how important that is. Well, that's one of the beautiful things I think about these letters is we find a couple where Jesus offers only commendation and praise, but really most of the letters, he speaks with some pretty harsh words about that church. And one of the things I think so important for us is culturally speaking, not just in a COVID era, but even pre-COVID, we already saw this trend where Christians were more committed to being a part of the capital C church. So the global church, the collection of all believers and every time and in every age, and the idea that I can be a part of the kingdom and connect spiritually, and my local affiliation doesn't matter as much. And that sounds good, and it is certainly true theologically in part, but what the letters to the churches tell us is that Jesus sees my local church. Jesus sees your local church. Because when we look at the seven letters to the churches, these are really Jesus's final words to his people as mm -hmm. the, the consummation of the end of the age happens. These are his final sermons. And he doesn't write one generic letter. He talks very particularly to Ephesus, very particularly to Laodicea. And so what I think that tells me is, hey, Jesus doesn't just care that Whitney's a part of the global church, a part of the kingdom at large. Jesus expects Whitney to be invested and committed to Crosspoint, my local church. 
And so then the sanctifying that he wants to do, sometimes when we think about it from that global perspective, we can think it's everybody else's problem. Mm -hmm. But when I think that he wants to sanctify my local church, then how Jesus is sanctifying me becomes very personal because I think, and I, listen, this is, this is, um, this is just my perspective. I would not say that I extrapolate this exactly from the text. Um, but I do wonder if our churches will never become more holy than her individual members are. Mm-hmm. And so when I think about Jesus sanctifying the church and don't think globally, when I think my local church and I go, gosh, how is my refusal to deal with my own sin issues keeping cross point from being what Jesus wants cross point to be, then it becomes really personal and it does involve sanctifying my heart so that Jesus can sanctify my church. And why I think that matters is then it, it keeps me from going, oh, well, that's my pastor's job or, oh, that's, that's the leadership's fault or, oh, my elders didn't do a good job, right? Which we can all kind of want to pass the buck on that. <laughs> right. But when we look at these letters, I think Jesus was speaking very personally to the church and asking them to make personal change that would bring about a collective good. Mm-hmm. Whitney, I know we've got a lot of pastors that listen to the show and church elders and leaders. And just, again, I think we have to uh, have a very clear vision of Jesus to have a healthy church. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's one of the reasons I think Revelation is structured the way it is, because Revelation 1, you get this really glorious, apocalyptic vision of Jesus and the throne room, and then we pivot kind of to the churches. And I thought, it's an interesting, it's an interesting maybe uh, content structure in that it might would have made sense to do the letters and then shift into all the apocalyptic imagery. But I think what Jesus is saying is just what you just said. Without a clear vision of mm-hmm. Jesus, we will never be a healthy church. That's so Ever. true. Never. We'll never get it. And, and, it, and that's, not, that's not purely on the shoulders of staff, right? Oh, I agree. And wouldn't it be great if we could give the gift to our leaders to go, hey, I'm not putting this burden solely on you to make our church be what Jesus wants it to be. But I'm going to step in and get in the get in the mess and say, I'm in. How can I be a part of the solution? Mm-hmm. Whitney, I'd love to just to just touch base with a little bit of uh, some of the letters. Maybe after the break, we'll talk a little bit about Ephesus and Smyrna and then maybe That'd move on great. to Sardis and Philadelphia. Yeah, we'll just talk about that when we come back. Whitney Caps is my guest. She's written a Bible study called We Over Me. We Over Me. And uh, we'll learn more about that after the break. We'll be right back. Caps is my guest. So glad to have her back on the show. She's written a Bible study called We Over Me. We're talking about Revelation. Fear not. It's well written and you'll get a lot out of it. And it's a video presentation. It'll be even more enjoyable. Um, So Whitney, right before I go back to a question I have for you, a listener uh, chimed in and she said, um, so good, in group Bible uh, settings and studies, do you have any tactics or good social etiquette approaches for how to respond to someone who is sincere and nice, but answers a question in a in a church group setting in a way that just doesn't line up with Scripture? So, <laughs> you know, sure. in other words, uh, how do you respond to a, a bad interpretation of Scripture in a group setting? Mm, be nice I, think, 
Oh, man. Well, one, it's just a great question, right? And it, right. it points to the fact that in church Bible study, our goal is to arrive at truth. And um, I, I heard it kind of explained this way. The goal when we're studying scripture is to arrive at four. We want to arrive at the number four. Now, what that means is I might look at a question and I might answer it in a way that is two plus two. Somebody else might answer it in a way that's seven minus three. Somebody else might answer in a way that is five plus two, uh, five uh, minus one. But the answer is always going to be four mm -hmm. because the text is always telling us a single truth. Now, we may have independent kind of applications to that, but we want those applications to derive from the single truth that God was trying to communicate. And I have been in situations where somebody was looking at the text and they didn't arrive at four. They arrived at seven or nine or 34, right? <laughs> and so mm -hmm. I think the kind thing for us to do is to say, Bible study is different than lots of other disciplines in life. And that is to say, there are sometimes wrong answers, but this is the one place where we can say, wrong answers are never, are, are never, kind. they don't exclude us from the work. We just don't want to hang on to them. We don't want to stay stuck there because anytime we're learning, we're going to get it wrong, right? That's the process of learning. And so I think it's encouraging the process, encouraging somebody's commitment to scripture, and then maybe kind of helping them see that we want to get at the singular truth that scripture's teaching, even if our applications are different. Mm -hmm. And so did we arrive at four? Did we get there? And if not to go, okay, what does this text holistically say? And um, listen, that takes a lot of work and it's not easy. But I do think one of the things that we've missed in modern Bible study is telling people that good Bible study often leaves us with more questions than it does answers. And that doesn't mean that we are incapable of studying it says that we're doing the work of knowing just this incomprehensible God who has made himself known, but that Bible study is really, really hard. And I think sometimes <laughs> we, we have, we've kind of, we've put maybe put off this facade as teachers or leaders that we always get the right answer and that we always know it from the jump. And listen, very regularly, I have to walk away from a Bible study and go, I don't, I don't know that. I don't know that answer. Or I arrived at an answer that I'm pretty sure is right, but I need to sit with it so that it changes me rather than be something that I'm just filling in a blank on a Bible study. Yeah. But yeah. to say that this is work, but it's worthy work. Yeah. Amen to that, Whitney. Thank you for that vulnerability too. That means a lot to me just hearing it from you. So let's go back to um, We Over Me, this Bible study. It's got some, uh, like session five, for example, it talks about Ephesus and Smyrna. Maybe you can give us a sample of what we would learn in session sure. five. Well, one of the things, and the letter to the church at Ephesus is one that's really profound to me. Let me just read um, the part that I think is so interesting. Jesus um, is going to commend the church at Ephesus because he says, I know your labor and your endurance and that you cannot tolerate evil people, that you have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and you found them to be liars. Now he'll go on to say that you have abandoned the love you have at first. And that's important because Jesus is going to say here that our affection for him has to savor everything that we do when we fight for truth. But one of my favorite parts about this particular letter is this sentence here, and it's in verse six. Jesus says, you do have this, 
You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Now, I did a quick kind of study through scripture, trying to see if I could ever find another place where Jesus says that he hates something. Mm -hmm. That's really extreme language for Jesus to use. And particularly in modern church culture, um, especially among younger believers, there's this real kind of soft Jesus that I like to call that he's loving and he's tender and he's compassionate. And he is all of those things without question. But the Jesus that we encounter in these letters is a Jesus who says, I hate the practices of the Nicolaitans. Wow. And that's really aggressive language for Jesus. So I don't want to miss what he's saying here to the church at Ephesus. Listen, you must love me first. Do not abandon your love for me and merely fight for truth. But he is affirming that a call to the healthy, holy church is that we will fight aggressively for truth, that we will fight against um, false doctrine, against teaching that Jesus hates. And while scripture doesn't give us a ton of background on the Nicolaitans, what we know is that they were perverting the gospel. What we think is that they were saying, listen, because we're saved, there are certain things that we don't have to worry about anymore and that we're free to redefine. Well, man, I, I got to say, I know this is an ancient letter, but that sounds real modern it to does. my ear. Sure does. It sounds real modern. Yeah. And so for Jesus to say, no, no, I hate that perversion of the gospel. And I, I think Jesus would say to us, like he would to the church at Ephesus, you have this going for you, that you hate the practices of the Nicolaitans like me. So I don't I don't want to receive the same conviction that the church at Ephesus did. And Jesus say, but wait, you weren't loving. You weren't loving. But I don't want to give up fighting for truth and battling against those things that Jesus hate because I have this squishy, kind of soft idea of Jesus that is true, but it's an anemic view of the risen Lord. Mm -hmm. He was a Jesus who said, I hate the practices of those who would pervert the gospel and say that things are permissible or able to be redefined. He said he hated that. And so I think there's encouragement for the church. I think what it means is we have to be really discerning when we want to do battle on social media. I think we have to be really discerning when we're having conversations with our coworkers or our family members that they should be laced with love. But we should be people who will say, I cannot abide by teaching that perverts the gospel, yeah. that says you can have this, but redefine it. Yeah, so good. All right. In uh, session eight, you talk about uh, Laodicea, and I think it's really time in our country right now for revival. And you've, you suggest that is in that is that message, that letter as well. That's right. I, so we love to read these letters, right? And there are several that, that only receive commendation. We're like, oh, that's the church I want to be a part of. But listen, <laughs> there's a lot of Laodicea in my heart. There's a lot of Laodicea. And again, what's so interesting about these letters um, is that it's a very aggressive um, language from Jesus. When he says here, we've probably all heard it a lot, but when he says, I wish that you were either hot or cold because you're lukewarm and you are neither hot nor cold, Jesus says, actually, I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth. Some translations say spit you out of my mouth. But the word here is that word for vomit. It's violent. It's aggressive. It's sickening mm -hmm. to our Savior that we would kind of 
we would kind of sit middle of the road as far as our faith goes. And listen, there's a lot of Laodicea in my life. I think Laodicea, I think it's interesting that Ephesus and Laodicea are the bookends to the letters, right? We have this church that was passionate for doctrine, but had lost their first love. And yet Jesus commends them. And then Laodicea over here wasn't passionate about anything. And so we have to find, uh, although he's not asking us to be middle of the road, we have to find a middle ground where we are passionate about truth, but equally loving. And I think that passion burns white hot and Laodicea had missed that. But while this letter is harsh and it's hard to read, there's something that Jesus says here to Laodicea that he doesn't say to anybody else. And it's in verse 19. He says, as many as I love, I rebuke and discipline. Mm -hmm. And so to this church that he has just said, listen, you make me want to vomit. (laughs) That that had to be so hard to hear. And I think about um, all of these letters were circulated to the other churches of the region. So Ephesus was reading Laodicea's letter and going, man, Jesus said he wanted to vomit them out. I just think about how cringy that is for me as a contemporary churchgoer to think, what if all of my church's conviction was put kind of front and center for everybody to see. And there's a part of me that thinks that might do us some good, right? That might do us some good for us to own our stuff collectively in kind of the concert of Christ followers and churches and and to say, this is where we're struggling and we want to do better church at large, church capital C. But this is, this is, this is what we own. This is our junk. But in this letter where Jesus has called out Laodicea, he says something beautiful here that he doesn't say anywhere else. And he says, I love you. I love you. And I'm rebuking you and disciplining you because I love you. Mm-hmm. And again, for a culture that loves kind of squishy, soft, Jesus is my homeboy kind of idea that's not who he is. He he is the alpha and the omega. He is the first and the last. He is the one who holds the keys of David. That's why these images of Jesus are so powerful for each of the letters. But he says, my love isn't just demonstrated by a healthy church budget and programs that work and fannies in the seats and people who are all happy and yes and amen at every budget meeting. He says that sometimes his love is demonstrated to us church when he says, hey, this is not well, this is not right. Mm -hmm. And I'm telling you this, I'm pointing it out. I'm dragging this into the light because I love you. Whitney Couch, you are never dull. (laughs) Do I wear you out though? No, you don't. No, you don't. She's like, wear me out, baby. (laughs) So how do, uh, how do my listeners get a hold of this, uh, this Bible study? Yeah, well, you can get it at lifeway.com. You'll find We Over Me there. You can search We Over Me or you can search Whitney Katz. And it gives you a ton of options as to how to use the resources and follow along with the workbook. You can do it by yourself or with a group. Awesome. Blessings to you and your family. And I will look forward to next time we get a chance to talk. That sounds great. Thanks, friend. You bet. Whitney Katz has been my guest. We'll take a little break and we've got hour two coming up in just a minute. We're going to be joined by Pastor Brent Kuhlman and also Ben Johnson from the Acton Institute will be in on the show the second half. We'll be right back. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.